It's March 4th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Mars Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories, and then we'll move on to the tech calendar. We'll speak with Gloria Bradwell about the first tech-savvy event. Then Frank Dorego from the Maui Economic Development Board will join us to tell us about the Maui Energy Conference. Finally, we'll learn about the framing of uh, broadband and the new challenges it faces and how key stakeholders are considering it critical infrastructure. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. For the first time, a stockpile of information on groundwater and geothermal resources in Hawaii has been brought together and put online, both uh, policy, both for policymakers and the public. The open data set includes both historic and new data on these natural resources. The Hawaii Groundwater and Geothermal Resources Center was created by the Hawaii Institute for Geophysics and Planetology and brings together information from both public and private agencies and organizations. Included in the center are historical photographs, graphs, slides, and newspaper articles, as well as more than 1,000 documents relating to geothermal and data on the water wells in Hawaii. The water well information provided by the state features each well's name, location, type, and depth. There is also an interactive map and downloadable water well files. The collection was brought together after the uh, Institute uh, researchers noticed growing public interest in several projects that affected these natural resources. Well, Institute Director Rhett Butler said in a statement, creating this open data set is an important first step in revitalizing our understanding of Hawaii's water resources as new and enhanced geophysical methods today promise to update the foundations of our current knowledge, which has been based on 80-year-old technology and studies. Project lead Nicole Lao said uh, explained that the online resource will help scientists Resource managers, potential developers, and policymakers, uh, and the public will have the necessary information to protect and optimally uh, uh, utilize Hawaii's natural resources and plan for a sustainable future. You know, when I saw this article, they not only had data available, but it looked like uh, something perhaps uh, Bishop Museum might house because they had all these samples. And actually the, the well map, and there are wells in places where you might not imagine that there are water wells tapped or historical wells. I wasn't sure what a water well file is. I'm not sure, you know, there's no such thing as Microsoft well, but mm. uh, it, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it is a repository, and I'm imagining that they're planning to add things to this collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of things uh, that is on tap, a probability map, which indicates the likelihood of in, uh, encountering a substance subsurface geothermal resource compiled from the Department of Energy. And, of course, uh, there's something called the Humuula Groundwater Research Project, which uh, provides some daily updates. All right. So if you're into at least water management, water resources, this is probably a place you could spend a lot of time. Yep. The Hawaii State Capitol regularly hosts a wide range of special guests, but on Monday, several visitors had a higher-than-average number of legs. The Hawaii Invasive Species Council was wrapping up its third annual Hawaii Invasive Species Awareness Week. Lawmakers, as well as the public, were able to get an up-close and personal look at some of the state's most destructive invaders. This includes the coconut rhinoceros beetle. The State Department of Agriculture is on high alert, as the beetle has decimated more than half of the palm trees in some Pacific territories. Hawaii is dealing uh, with as many as half of the top 100 invasive species on the planet. The Invasive Species Council was formed after the state legislature declared them the single greatest threat to Hawaii's economy and natural environment and to the health and lifestyle of Hawaii's people. Monday's events also include a, an exhibit of 
student essays and artwork, and the presentation of the Hawaii Invasive Species Council Awards. The 2015 Community Hero was Charlotte Yamane. She volunteers with several groups, including the Council, the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, and the Nature Conservancy. Hawaiian Airlines was recognized as a business leader for its collaboration with the State Department of Agriculture. They show informational videos to passengers, for example, as well as allow access to air cargo areas for inspections. For more information on this program, you can visit dlnr.hawaii.gov slash HISC. Now, you know, this uh, statistic of being uh, having half of the top 100 invasive species on the planet is a bit concerning. I mean, I, you know... Uh, we are coconut, the front lines. Yeah, rhinoceros beetle. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, it can kill a whole coconut tree, but at least you can kind of know where that is, right? It's got to be up in the coconut tree. What I don't like are those <laughs> fire ants, those little fire ants. And, and they have them in Mililani, I mean, yeah. and other places. Now, those rhinoceros beetles are definitely, that's why there are all those uh, traps that are hanging from mm-hmm, trees. Mm-hmm. I should have mentioned, I liked one of the other awards that they gave out at this event was the hottest call to come into the pest hotline at 643 Pest, and it tells the story basically of a guy who saw a 24-inch juvenile water monitor lizard at the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam and called them, and they had to go and recover this creature before it caused any havoc. So now, you know, using that line, uh, 643 Pest, you could also get recognition if you have a particularly interesting call. Yeah, I guess you got to get really <laughs> animated when you make that call. <laughs> well, moving on to the tech calendar, Saturday, the Pacific Aviation Museum is hosting a special event for young people called Discover Your Future in Aviation, students. Group uh, students, school groups, scouts, and families are invited to come out and talk one-on-one with aviation professionals and hear featured speakers. The event runs from 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Ford Island. And, of course, for more information, you can visit PacificAviationMuseum.org. Also, this Saturday, Mid-Pacific Institute is hosting an unconference. We love our unconferences. Oh, yeah. To talk about deeper learning in schools. All educators are invited to attend and help build the half-day program, which could cover anything from project-based learning to co-teaching to restorative discipline. It's organized by the Deeper Learning Hawaii Network, which is, of course, MPI and a number of public charter schools. For more information, you can visit deeperlearninghawaii.weebly.com. And, of course, for all these events, we will put the links on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. And joining us is Gloria Brajwell, and she is here to tell us about the Tech Savvy Day that's uh, primarily directed for girls. And, of course, uh, welcome to the show, Gloria. Thank you, Bert. Yeah, Tech Savvy is a one-day conference in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math for girls grades 6 to 9. Mm-hmm. It's March 14th, which is a Saturday at Windward Community College. Now, what was the sort of idea, the genesis behind Tech Savvy? I mean, I know this is the first one for Hawaii, but it has gone on for a couple of years on the mainland, right? Yeah, it actually started in 2006 in Buffalo, New York, and they ran the program successfully and then this is the second year that AAUW has rolled it out nationally. AAUW, what is that? The American Association of University Women. Mm-hmm. And so this will be our se- our second year piloting it and the first time in Hawaii. Okay, so the uh, the uh, first couple of years were pilots, and so it was like maybe just a, a trial kind of a, uh, event? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Buffalo did it successfully mm-hmm. for eight years. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then... Um, National rolled it out. We did 10 states last year and then increased to 15 states this year. Wow. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, women in technology has definitely been a uh, important topic, a hotly discussed topic, certainly in the last year. And uh, what would be the, the, the what will be at the Tech Savvy event? I mean, what specifically happens um, to address this topic? 
Well, we actually have workshops for both the girls and their parents. <coughs> I see. So the workshops we have, um, the uh, some of the examples are, they're fun, hands-on workshops. One is called um, Scalpel Stats. It's not a statistics workshop. It's actually where the girls get to um, practice sur- like surgery, but mm-hmm. not on a real person. It's <laughs> simulated, but yeah. So they get an example of that. Um, another one is the nose nose. And so they'll have the, the dogs that they use over it for TSA, for example. Oh, ah, okay. Yep. And how and why they're, they're uh, searching out agricultural products. I saw, I saw a topic, uh, something to the effect of uh, selfie sticks and social media or something like that. Yes, yeah, <laughs> selfie click click. Okay. So you wouldn't think anybody would need a class on selfies, but actually what it is, it's one of the s- several of our soft skills that we call savvy skills mm-hmm. and um, teaching the girls how to um, put forth a positive digital footprint in social media. Oh, great. Yeah. Now, if this is, uh, you said, geared toward uh, um, 6 to 9? Gr- grade 6 grade to 9. Grade 6 to 9. Yep. And are you uh, putting it out to all the schools? And, and how, how are people, let's say, signing up or participating? Yeah, so it is going out to all the schools, public and private. Mm-hmm. And they can register at, on our website at Honolulu dot, excuse me, honolulu-hi.aeuw.net. Okay, well, uh, give that to me, and I'll put it up on our show notes. I'm Fabulous. curious about the uh, the parent side. I, I would imagine that maybe the selfie stick class might be addressed at the parents rather than the students, for example. But as a parent myself of young children, um, what what could I look forward to at the Tech Savvy event? Good question. So the parents are going to have uh, their own workshops at the same time as the girls, but separate. So we're going to have a panel for them, talking to them about um, keeping the girls in the pipeline through college, Mm -hmm. college preparedness, financial aid. Um, We also have someone from Design Thinking Hawaii coming Mm -hmm. to put together a more playful workshop for the parents. And... um, same same subjects, trying to keep them in the, the STEM pipeline. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you envision perhaps uh, doing more events through the course of the year, or is this pretty much kind of like a, an annual sort of event? Tech Savvy will be an annual event. Mm-hmm. And then um, AEW actually does other workshops for um, girls on the college level. This mm-hmm. is the first mm-hmm. one we'll be doing in, in the uh, grade schools. Fantastic. So could you remind us once again uh, the date, time, location? Um, we'll put the link on our show notes, but uh, if they need to block out their calendar, what should they be blocking out? So it's March 14th, mm-hmm. which is a Saturday. It's from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. It's $5 for students and $10 for adults. And the website is honolulu-hi.aauw.net. And where is this taking place? Oh, Windward Community College ah, at Hale Akoakoa. Oh, great, Excellent. great. Sounds good. So thanks, uh, Gloria, for joining us. Thank you. This was a great opportunity. And on, now joining us on the phone is Frank DiRego from the Maui Economic Development Board, and he's here to tell us about the upcoming Maui Energy Conference. Welcome to the show, Frank. Aloha, Bert. Thank you for having me on this afternoon. Yeah, well, great to have you on and great to have our friends on Maui uh, Learn a little bit about what's happening with this uh, the Maui Energy Conference. Now, how many years have you guys been doing this? Uh, well, this is the second year of the conference, and the name actually reflects what people started to call it. Uh, in fact, uh, the conference has become so popular, even in the second year, we have to turn away potential speakers, mm. uh, which I think speaks to the quality of the program that we offered last year and are trying to continue this year. 
Now, tell me, uh, as much as I, I love Maui, I mean, is there any kind of differentiation between a energy conference on Maui versus, let's say, an energy conference on Oahu? Well, uh just a little bit about last year's conference, we looked at the evolving business model of the electric utility in the age of new technologies and the expanding niche of energy sources. You would say that would be pretty much uh, done anywhere. Uh, but in Maui, actually, our conference kind of steers away from uh, just having sort of the political uh, aspect of this. We actually bring experts that uh, talk about uh, these issues uh, outside of the political realm, and uh, it's a comfortable place to bring up uncomfortable subjects, as mm. we like to say. Uh-huh. And where else can you find this kind of group of people uh, instead of politicians or people pushing a particular product or issue? So mm-hmm. that that's what we like to say is unique. We're not only Maui-centric, we cover issues statewide, and... Uh, we actually have a lot of people from Oahu coming over uh, to visit uh, our sister island and uh, to be a part of the conference. Well, you know, Frank, uh, I think Maui has quite a lot to be proud of in terms of its position and its current progress with renewable alternative energy and, and uh, advancing um, grid technologies. Uh, can you give an uh, overview, really, about why Maui is an ideal place for a conference like this? Uh, well, uh, simply because of what you said, you know, uh, we've uh, been a leader in terms of uh, integrating renewables into our, our grid. Uh, we also are investigating through our programs like JumpSmart, uh, which is uh, sort of a joint uh, effort between the United States and Japan to look at uh, integrating new technologies, uh, including uh, electrical vehicles. Uh, engaging this two-way conversation that's eventually going to happen in all utility grids to uh, make our grid more efficient and to provide choices for customers. So I think Maui is uniquely um, positioned to lead a conference like this simply because of all the experimentation and all the uh, kinds of projects that are happening here right now. So, Frank, uh, give us a sense of what type of, let's say, sessions or speakers will be presenting at, uh, at uh, the Maui Energy Conference? Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, first of all, we actually have uh, just, uh, we'll have Eric Gleason, who's the president of NextEra Energy Transmission, and Alan Oshima, president and chief executive officer of Hawaiian Electric Company, as being keynotes for the conference. Mm-hmm. I know a big issue right now is the buying of NextEra by uh uh, buying of elect- Hawaiian Electric, right, actually, right. Uh, industries uh, by NextEra Energy. So I think it's timely to have them as being keynotes uh, at the conference. Uh, we also have a very interesting section of where we're trying to understand the evolving role of the customer in a broader context. Uh, I didn't. I failed to mention that uh, this year the, uh, the focus of the conference is going to be on the customer. How does the utility act and be in, within the context of the evolving role of the customer? You know, customers in the 21st century are going to be prosumers, right? More customers are going to have a demand, in, uh, demand a voice in managing their own energy needs. So we're going to be exploring customer choices, their access to the grid, what kinds of rate options and programs are available or should be available to customers. 
Um, and we'll also be looking at uh, issues that have come up, especially in regards to uh, distributed generation and solar. You know, how can we essentially make these kinds of choices or uh, help people who are essentially tied to the grid, like renters, homeowners, who can't afford the cost of PV. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of issues uh, that some of the sessions are going to be covering. Also, what's the role of the regulatory compact? How does the PUC and other consumer protection agencies protect the consumer in this new sort of evolving context or business model of the electric utility? Mm. I'm, I'm curious, uh, will you have a session perhaps uh, talking about the, uh, let's say, the island-wide grid and, and whether there's a a future for sort of a connection between all the grids on the islands? Uh, well, we do have a session advancing toward grid modernization and meeting customer needs, and I would imagine the whole idea of a, you know, connected, connected uh, grid uh, in the state would also come up as a, as a matter of course in that. Uh, some of that discussion also occurred last year, uh, when we looked at the evolving business model of the electric utility in last year's conference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these issues never go away. They they still kind of follow you, even though you may change the theme or the focus of the conference from year to year. All right. So, uh, Frank, for those who are – it sounds like a great event. If someone was interested in participating and attending, uh, where can they go for more information and what day and what time is it taking place? Okay. So the Maui Energy Conference is uh, March 25th uh, to the 27th. And uh, that would be uh, Thursday, I mean, Wednesday through uh, Friday. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can sign up at uh, www.mauienergyconference.com. How easy to remember, huh? That's pretty good. Uh, (laughs) We'll definitely put that up on our show notes. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. This has been a great opportunity. We don't often get to uh, advertise here on Maui. Uh, our events that would be of interest to people on Oahu or throughout the state. So I really want to thank the both of you so much for uh, having us on uh, this evening. Keep us posted on your future events. And thanks, Frank, for joining us. Okay. Take care now. Okay. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Senator Kalani English and Dr. Jeffrey Bannister from HPU. And we'll talk about broadband and resilience. Does broadband play a part in our evaluation of how resilient our community is? Of course, we love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio monitoring Twitter. You can reach us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. You know, even those sturdy, really well-made old appliances wear out eventually. I was baking my last batch of empanadas when my 21-year-old oven just quit. I'm Kai Rizdal. How buying a new oven was the start of a great story. Our series, The Transaction, next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. On the next morning edition, a TV series focused on a murder viewed through the lens of family and race. When you inject race into a circumstance, whoever it is, you are opening the door. And once you open that door, what else rushes in? I'm Renee Montaigne, Oscar-winning screenwriter John Ridley on his new TV show, American Crime, on the next morning edition. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. 
Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Senator Kalani English and Dr. Jeffrey Bannister from HPU. Uh, of course, uh, Senator English is the Senate Majority Leader, and of course he is also the Vice Chair of the Senate Committee on Tourism and International Affairs and a member of the Senate Committees on Transportation and Ways and Means. Dr. Jeffrey Bannister, meanwhile, is the president of Hawaii Pacific University. It's home of the Asia Pacific Institute for Resilience and Sustainability. And of course, uh, what is the resilience and sustainability strategy for Hawaii? And we'd love to hear your comments and questions that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we want to welcome both of you, Kalani and Jeff, to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you. Great to be here. Now, Kalani, I think we'll start with you. And I want to, um, you know, we've been following sort of the broadband uh, saga for many, many years. And, and you know, We've been sort of interested, of course, when uh, Governor Abercrombie talked about the Gigabit Initiative, but I think I think we can all agree that uh, it hasn't been a a vision fulfilled. And what is it that is now important for us to consider about broadband, and what are some of the challenges that we're now facing, given that we're in 2015? Well, I think the first thing you have to understand that it went from you know uh, we have to put in broadband mm-hmm. from that that discussion to now it's it's part of the critical infrastructure because we didn't take action over the last few years it's gotten to the point that if we don't take action now um, within a couple of years you know the basics basic things I don't know swiping a credit card will become difficult um, you know any kind of bad broadband your your live streaming um, people picking up on this broadcast out there would become very difficult if not impossible so you know it went from um, something we should do mm-hmm. to okay, we're we're entering into a crisis, and we must do this, and we must do it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, doctor, can you tell us a little bit about the the center that's at your university, and specifically, uh, you know, you're combining both resiliency and sustainability. Those are both enormous topics, um, certainly related to each other. Uh, I mean, what's the the history of that 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 uh, institute, and how does this interaction now happen with the state on a broader level to to improve our sustainability and resiliency. Um, from our perspective, this flows out of a program we've been running for a while in global leadership and sustainable development because we think the resiliency component has to be added into that as well. As an island economy 2,500 miles away from the mainland, we have to take resiliency very, very seriously. We're looking this in terms of food production, Um, sustainability of the islands in terms of aquaculture, agriculture, as well as the technological side that the senator refers to. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, uh, last year, 2014, there was a bill that turned into an act, Act uh, 229, which is uh, the establishment of the Asia-Pacific Institute for Sustainability, Resilience and Sustainability, or codename AIRS. And and, uh, that's that's an interesting concept, which you know, started to really get its uh, legs last session. And I think this session, there's some interesting bills that kind of build upon that. But uh, Kalani, tell us a little bit about the uh, sort of the background thought that went into the creation of AIRS. 
Well, we needed we needed basically a think tank type of uh, organization, someone that can take the really big big pictures, uh, take a look at that, and then start drilling down and start providing really good data mm-hmm. to uh, the policymakers. We we needed to shift thinking, and part of that was uh, you know we have to look at ourselves in the region, look at how we interact in the region, and also then look at our vulnerabilities and look at um, the things that that give us strength. Mm-hmm. So. That was the part of why we we stood up airs. Um, you know, another side of it is that, uh, frankly, we we uh, there's many things facing us, and we need an organization that can look at those things and help us think through it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the the partnership that includes a variety of stakeholders. Maybe tell us who is part of airs. Okay, well, you know, AIRS is one of these things that it's a, it's not a traditional type of um, 501c3 nonprofit. It's not like that at all. In fact, it's a, it's a network of uh, researching organizations, universities, mm-hmm. uh, researchers, um, military, uh, non-governmental organizations, and government. So, you know, for example, in Hawaii, we've only the Hawaii, Hawaiian government has only stood up three organizations before, East-West Center being one of them, mm. uh, the Bishop Museum as mm-hmm. the Hawaii State Museum, and now the Pacific Asia Institute for Sustainability and Resiliency. So, you know, it's it's a very rare occurrence that we would do something like this. Yeah, that, I, I appreciate that explanation because I wasn't, I didn't fully understand, I think, the structural and the history, uh, the, the, the class that AERS falls into. Um, so, Jeff, can you tell me, I mean, how did it come to your university specifically as the place to, to, to house that? Well, one of the things, as a private university, we have a great deal of flexibility in both creating new organizations and forming partnerships. Critical to doing the work that is is being set up to do is the ability to shift from broadband to smart networks, uh, grid problems, education problems in the schools. And we have to be prepared to bring in some other people who are technical experts in certain fields. So we have a history of being able to form quick partnerships when they're needed, uh, bring in some of the best Ph.D. candidates. So at this point, through the PACOM fellows, we're hosting Europeans and others doing Ph.D.s on topics of great importance to the state of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Um, Since we don't have our own Ph.D. programs Mm -hmm. at HPU, we don't have a lot of the competition you normally have for bringing those students and faculty members in. So we find it fairly easy to talk to MIT, to Harvard, to Columbia, and we had reps from those three schools in last week, and making room for new people to help us see ourselves in new ways, and them helping us to train young people here as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeff, uh, that was a great introduction for me to give an opportunity to introduce Dr. Rich Berry, who is on the line, and he is the Director of Strategic Partnerships with the U.S. Pacific Command. So, Rich, uh, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha, Bert. It's great to be with you. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Bannister just kind of gave a good sort of uh, introduction of of where the partnership might include the the U.S. Pacific Command. But, uh, Rich, uh, give us your your sort of perspective on on AIRS and how U.S. uh, US Pacific Command might fit in. Well, Bert, the... I think I'd probably start with just uh, maybe stating the obvious, but um, kind of like Senator English mentioned, you know, the Internet has really reshaped how just how humanity communicates. 
big data is it's different and it's it marks a real transformation in how our society processes information so for example uh, every day uh, the Society for Worldwide Internet uh, Interbank Financial Telecommunications or SWIFT it transmits some 20 million messages uh, every day to more than 8,000 banking organizations security institutions and corporate customers um, across more than 230 countries um, without broadband without undersea fiber optic uh, networks this type of banking and commerce simply could not happen hmm. and it's this kind of capability that US Paycom depends on for secure reliable uh, data connectivity to command and control the forces across the Asia Pacific which as you know is more than half the world's surface mm-hmm. uh, and more than 360,000 men and women in, in, in uniform and the forces and the equipment assigned to it so the, the ability for us to be able to do that and do it uh, in a really robust way is extremely important to PACOM. Mm-hmm. I understand. Now, uh, so, so Rich, uh, if you were to car- characterize what is essential in terms of infrastructure that the uh, you know, U.S. Pacific Command would, would look at Hawaii providing, what would that be? Well, I don't think there's a single thing that, at this point uh, from an infrastructure perspective, that would be more important um, than the broadband, mm-hmm. um, simply because it feeds right into all the other elements of critical infrastructure that we all depend on every day. For example, take the electric grid. Um, when we talk about the electrical grid, what everyone really wants here now is a smart grid, as Dr. Banster alluded to. That smart grid, the idea of how can our grid, we have such a high penetration of renewables here, the best in the country. But, you know, the grid, not just here in Hawaii, but on the mainland as well, I mean, it's still basically the same grid that Thomas Edison, you know, invented. So the ability to move the amounts of data that we're talking about to understand how that data uh, affects the grid operations every day that allows the electric utility to make uh, better informed decisions on a daily basis Broadband's going to enable them to make those types of upgrades in the grid that that we need here to fully integrate renewables um, into the future of our energy mm-hmm. consumption. Mm-hmm. Well, Rich, I'm glad we have you on the line. I hope you can stick around for a little more of our program. We are talking to Rich Berry from the U.S. Pacific Command, Senator Kalani English, and Dr. Jeffrey Bannister about broadband, Internet, and how it actually fits into discussions about sustainability and resiliency in Hawaii. If you've got a comment or a question for this esteemed panel, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also listening on Twitter. Uh, so, Kalani, we're, we're seeing this as critical, and every year it seems there are some bills that touch on broadband, the importance of being better connected, faster speeds, more consumer uh, protections even, all around this area. Um, What is it looking like at this point in the current session? Yes, well, we do have a number of bills moving that deal with this. I mean, specifically, we introduced, um, I think, five or six bills dealing with the the AIRS, uh, this initiative, um, this Resiliency and Sustainability Initiative. Uh, But the main thing to, to understand is that we need to put in a new cable. And if we don't get that in soon, then we will have a a slowdown or even no internet, Mm -hmm. no connectivity. But, you know, people only think of connectivity as 
um, their devices, their TV. Their, but it's really critical infrastructure because think of our, the water pumps that move water, the pumps that move the, the sewer system. They're all tied into the grid. Uh, the electrical system itself. Uh, so we're, we're dealing with really the, the, the core of what keeps our society going. Uh, and that's why it's so important. And the bills uh, that we're talking about have, have moved in the Senate. Uh, just yesterday, two of these bills passed out and are being uh, sent to the Senate floor and then will be sent over to the House on Friday. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, we, we love talking about undersea cables here on our show, and we track various initiatives coming from the South Pacific, the, the Pacific Islands there, connecting to the West Coast. Um, a lot of them are usually framed as a private sector enterprise. So uh, how do you see that partnership with the, the state legislature? Yes, well, generally it is a private enterprise, but, you know, because this is part of our critical infrastructure, government has to make a choice. We have to say, yes, this is part of our critical infrastructure because it supports the whole of society, everything. Yeah, And once we do that, then we have to figure out the public-private partnership and how do we finance this and how do we get the cable put in. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the practicalities of it, to get a ship to lay the cable, you have a two-year wait time. Uh, and then it takes, uh, you know, a lot of time to prep the landing sites to actually get this in. So once the political decision and the funding mechanisms are worked out, now we have the real practical on the ground uh, decisions. Can we get the ship to lay the cable? What's the wait time for that? Can we get the expertise to come in and put it in? Have we prepped the landing sites? Do we have all the interconnectivity, interoperability, everything set to go? And certainly environmental regulations would be a part of that. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what what um, was it that perhaps hung up in previous years, the establishment of a cable landing site, because that, that is key to the I, I think it was done by committee. Okay. Well, that would kill, <laughs> that would kill just about anything. You know, because if you think about it, right, I mean, we cover the uh, commercial, let's say, trans-Pacific fiber coming in. I mean, we've, we've ran a couple of stories about Hawaiian Telecom, uh, you know, investing $25 million in a, in a cable coming in from, um, uh, from Indonesia. Uh, we've also talked about, uh, you know, their let's say, cable landing. But I think it makes a lot of sense for infrastructure like that to be ready for that cable because, for the most part, at one time, cable needed to land in Hawaii. But now repeaters and electronics are so good. They can bypass it. And the expense to actually land on uh, in Hawaii becomes an obstacle. And if there is, uh, let's say, you know, rights to to get and and you know sort of rights of ways and and, and permits and you know a landing that's secure uh that needs to get worked on and you know i guess by committee well, that wasn't something that was well, okay really so in the past you know they they've had other initiatives other um you know things looking at this and they always i guess it gets hung up on you know where mm-hmm. okay i think we're beyond that i think we're, we we have enough information we know that we need it we know the technology uh you know, we know generally where they should go on each island. I mean, ideally, we need seven landing sites in, in the state of Hawaii uh, to put in a system that will provide the redundancy and the backup that we need. Um, you know, we also have to factor in the the, the fact that um, many of our cables are reaching the end of their life cycle. So they're going to start breaking down mm. very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, so it's just a, it's almost a no-brainer. How do we put this in? It's the political will. Mm-hmm. And the financing that needs to needs to shape up to make it happen, and that's what I'm hoping changed in this session, because we the Senate anyway did a lot of preparatory work, um, you know, for this session. Um, I had uh, some very unusual um, briefings uh, by by PACOM, 
by the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies in Waikiki, um, by other really large thinkers to come in and brief the senators, all of our senators, mm-hmm. not just the majority, you know, but our minority as well, on just what, what's at stake and what we need to do to put it in place. I think we've gone around the corner. We're, we know that we, can, uh, we cannot not make a decision because we have all the facts before us now. So, uh, Jeff, I mean, how yeah. do you get through that political will? Well, I think one of the things we have to uh, look to is leadership, and, and Kalani's been providing that along with several of his colleagues. But we also have to make sure that these problems are all interconnected, that as we put a cable down, we need to be simultaneously looking at the tsunami warning system and making sure that where we put the cable, where we bring it in, is optimally coupled in for how we're managing those buoys and that communication system. So there's a lot of communication devices that go along with the cable that exist and coexist with it. And we've talked a lot about uh, sensors for ocean conditions and such. And, Mm -hmm. um, Rich, if you're still on the line, I mean, certainly there's interest as far as defense um, and and the accessibility and connectivity that these cables provide, correct? Well, certainly. Um, Technology uh, has – I think technology provides the opportunity now to – um, start to interconnect uh, some of this technology and integrate it in such a way that it can provide a, a new level of security. For example, um, a tsunami warning system that actually um, can give us enough warning between, let's say, the Aleutian um, Trench in Alaska and Hawaii, where we had the last large tsunami that uh, practically wiped out that wiped out Hilo and some of the other outer islands. Um, Putting a sensor network on a cable that can be inter, uh, interconnected with uh, buoys, uh, UAVs, and then a new generation of satellites can provide realistic, uh, to-the-second uh, information on what's going on from a weather uh, and oceanographic uh, perspective. And that that kind of uh, that kind of uh, interactivity between that kind of technology is where we're at today and where we can take advantage of it. You have real research and development efforts that are willing um, to, to bring that technology to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have to step to it. Yeah, and the other thing is some of the data handling capacity that has to go along with these projects has other uses. So we're looking at, at computers that we hook up um, along with the Maui supercomputer, some incidences of artificial intelligence machines that can help us approach some issues in healthcare and others as well. Mm-hmm. So resilience isn't just a matter of watching out for the next storm. It's also a matter of making sure that the community is healthy, we're monitoring how we're doing, and we need an emergency ops center that's more coordinated within the state that can be extremely useful for day-to-day monitoring of traffic conditions and just generally making a smarter city um, out of our own home. Yes, and you know, I, I think there's a lot that we can continue to talk about in terms of uh, some of the introduced bills that talk to the landing, the emergency uh, 
let's say, monitoring center that's being proposed. Uh, and, and I, I want to get to the idea of where is the, where is that will to actually make this happen. So we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back to, after this short break to continue our conversation with Senator Kalani English and uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bannister and Rich uh, Berry on the line. And we're talking about broadband in the context of the state's resilience and sustainability. How important is broadband in either emergencies or conducting business or living everyday life? Of course, we'd like your insights as well. If you've got a thought or a question, you can call us at 941-3689 or reach us from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Who gets what water? On Maui, as in the rest of our state, squabbles over water are ongoing. Next on The Conversation, we'll look at the East Maui Stream Division's hearing started Monday, and tomorrow we'll talk with an attorney from the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation. The Conversation starts tomorrow morning at 8. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Susan Moon, author of This Is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my experience of the pluses and minuses of aging. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Senator Kalani English, Dr. Jeffrey Bannister, and Rich Berry about sustainability, resiliency, and how that works and is needed for broadband internet. Now, you know, right before the break, uh, we were talking about the the bills that were getting introduced, the critical nature of what we have to do. And what I want to start to kind of get a little better understanding about is... Uh, uh, what is it, where can we gauge that, that will of our, let's say, government to actually move forward on this policy? And, of course, if you have a question or comment about this topic, which is an important one, you can call us at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Kalani, so where is the will of, let's say, our legislature, our government, to actually put a stake in the ground and make this happen? I think in the past, you know, it's been it's been put to government that we have to fund the whole thing, and that's been the big hang-up. I mean, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a typical cable of this nature costs anywhere from 150 to 200 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if we look at it and in terms of critical infrastructure, and we look at it in terms of a public-private partnership, where you know, yes, we provide the framework, we provide the the structure of how this goes, and some money, but there'll be a lot of outside. Um, people that would put money into this, a lot of the big players uh, around the globe that need infrastructure, global infrastructure, will help support this. America's pivot, you know, the pivot towards uh, towards the Pacific and Asia, really it's a, it's a re-pivot towards Southeast Asia. It's mm-hmm. to um, Myanmar, towards uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, those, that area of the world. So all of this infrastructure from the U.S. side will pass through Hawaii. And that's what we have to capitalize on because there's a huge interest in this. 
the term is pivot towards towards uh, the Pacific mm-hmm. or Southeast Asia. It's really a repivot towards that area. So we can provide a couple of things. The intellect towards that. That's what Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can help provide some of the well, the military command com- towards that. For the U.S. is based here. The um, the goodwill is based here too because if you go to the this area of the, the planet and you say you're from America, you get one reaction. You say you're from Hawaii, you get another reaction. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a will to do business with us, with Hawaii, and uh, we have to capitalize on all of that. Put in the infrastructure. I think that many of the legislators are now seeing that it is no longer a luxury, something we can discuss. We really have to act. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the part. The critical nature of it is the one key that will help get a policy decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that leadership comes also from the business community and from PACOM. In particular, Admiral Locklear really understands the amount of energy that's being taken up for PACOM in dealing with disaster relief. One part of AIRS is, in fact, get some training programs for people who live in the islands of the Pacific because we have a responsibility as an island community ourselves to teach people what we know about how to survive in a tough environment. And and this culture has been really superb over time in handling things in a sustainable way. So I think we have a governor who's an engineer, understands the problem. We've got leadership from PACOM. Uh, this morning at breakfast, I was talking to one of our hotel executives who's saying the number one complaint that the hotel industry gets today is bandwidth, mm-hmm. bandwidth, mm-hmm. bandwidth. So we have to put this together. But it, it isn't just the technology. I would like to emphasize that it's also about food sustainability, safe and secure food. So we have to match these with continued developments in in agriculture, aquaculture, and the other fields because the technology will help us get the, the basis in place. But we still have to become more resilient, more independent. Now we have uh, uh, Rich Berry who's uh, from uh, Pacific Command, and, and Rich uh, – uh, not to put you on the spot, and I, I know you can't commit any dollars, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know that Pacific Command is a, a major presence in Hawaii. And and I guess to, to dovetail off of what uh, Kalani English is talking about, where do you see, let's say, PACOM committing their resources in making this happen? Well, from, from a PACOM perspective, the role that, that we have played has been one of, as much as possible, of convener, and uh, helping to identify some of the players that Dr. Bannister and Senator English have identified. Um, so, for example, when you start talking about um, the island being a, a location for business wanting to come here for research and development, it's a very unique place from the perspective of you haven't literally islanded systems. Um, our grid's not connected to the mainland. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem set that we have here, it can be isolated very easily compared to, you know, a larger system that's connected to other, um, other networks on the, on the mainland. Uh, you can identify those problems and really come up with innovative solutions to apply to them. That's what attracts R&D. Um, they have a chance to bring their solutions to, the, uh, to a problem very, very quickly, test it, and get it to market. That's what would make uh, the private sector want to come to Hawaii. And if they've got the infrastructure to support it, um, it will not only support them, but it supports PACOM's needs. It supports all the tenants 
here on the island. And, Rich, I mean, it is clear that there are a number of facets to this. Uh, Jeff mentioned food uh, security, for example, and it's it's no secret that the that the Pacific Command and the military in Hawaii is making significant investments here in things like alternative energy, even wave energy. I mean, some mm-hmm. some serious R and D and things that are still unknown. So it's clear that it's a it's a priority, correct? Well, it absolutely is, and I think Hawaii, from that perspective, uh, we lead the nation. Uh, HNEI uh, at the University of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, much of the work that's being done now uh, with uh, with AIRS and work they're doing with with HECO. Um, if we continue to move forward, it's it's literally cutting edge as far as some of the work that's being done, some of the research that's being conducted. We just have to make sure that it gets followed through on, and and then all of a sudden that becomes actionable. You know, one of the interesting uh, sort of concepts that is getting uh, sort of redefined is the idea of tech parks and the idea of these offshore tech parks. And I think perhaps uh, Baycom might be involved with these. These are the buoys that are set out across the Pacific Ocean that's monitoring the conditions of the Pacific. And, and the idea of having the information and the data that's being collected by those buoys be a part of this network, and then perhaps uh, considering that part of the sort of offshore tech park. Kalani, you want to say anything about that? Well, you know, again, this is very um, forward-thinking, mm-hmm. and the idea is that we have to try and uh, try and put in place a way to, I guess the term is monetize this, so that we can, mm-hmm. we can uh, bring in the, the capital to make these things happen. So we have to find innovative ways to do it. Uh, tech, the offshore tech parks are, um, are something that we've been thinking about for a while, uh, looking at how we can uh, help the investment to come in for the public-private partnerships to put in the infrastructure we need. But what do we provide back to them? Many of these big companies, uh, they need research. You know, like as Dr. Berry was saying, uh, uh, we're, we're not an interconnected grid. We mm-hmm. are standalone grids. That's a wonderful laboratory for um, some very you know, from grid companies around the world, power companies around the world, to look at how do we solve some of these problems? How do we do interconnectivity? How do we bring in renewables? Uh, So that's what we're looking at. The offshore tech parks are simply looking at how we can create that that financing and partnership. Mm -hmm. And Hawaii is capable of being very much a model for a sustainable community, and a lot of the companies really understand that. Um, We have less than a million and a half people uh, we're located in a relatively stable environment. Uh, one of the things we're doing at HPU is our shrimp breeding. To have 90% of the world's brood stock of white shrimp located 2,500 miles from anybody is ideal because we know they're not going to get infected. So we can work in very special ways out from here. And we also need to you know, keep working with the other universities. UH has some superb research centers that that have a lot to bring to bear on this. So our key is to get the community, the diplomatic community, the military, the the business community, the university communities to pull together around this and, and see what we can learn about the best way to handle these issues. So I guess one of the key things is looking for the differentiator that makes Hawaii a unique place to do this research. Uh, the, you know, the idea of, of, of AIRS and the partnership that has been created with HPU and, and another uh, university in, I think, London in the UK uh, called Swansea. And, and there, there was also the connection between 
one of the key presenters at the symposium. Uh, his name is uh, uh, Steve Chan. And, and it seems like there's a lot of emphasis on how do these island nations or island states really mm-hmm. sort of yeah. become resilient in the face of this 21st century. And I think there's some very unique things that could get, uh, let's say, you know, learned, I guess, uh, as a result of that. Yeah, the British example is interesting. Incidentally, Swansea is in Wales, unless mm-hmm. it, although they are opening a new campus in London. Okay. Um, <laughs> but if you if you look at that kind of activity we're seeing the british putting less emphasis in their on the water navy and much more emphasis on cybersecurity because they know that's where the next fight is largely going to be mm-hmm. in our case we have to deal with cybersecurity as well for both business and and for defense related reasons um britain's doing that because it's an island community and they're able to do things, and companies have come together. The new campus that Swansea is building in London is very much dependent on some of these companies who are sponsoring the research changes that are taking place. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to see some of that happen here because of the ancillary benefits. If we can get an incident of a machine like a Watson, for example, Watson just downloaded the entire cancer files for the Cleveland Clinic. That took it a few minutes. Then it went to WellPoint and had all of their files. Now it's able to diagnose relatively rare cancers. When you're in a small population such as this, having a machine that's got access to many, many more case histories than we have makes this a more healthful community. So we see a lot of benefits from looking at the integration of these things, not just saying we need broadband or we need a smart grid. Um, we need to be more sustainable and more resilient as a community as a whole. And mm-hmm. we need to tackle this holistically, and we need to tackle it cooperatively. Now, Rich, before we run out of time, I did want to check in with you uh, once more. Uh, you made a good case about how the U.S. Pacific Command and the military is a key stakeholder in this conversation. And uh, Kalani talked about the shift toward the Pacific, and certainly that's something that the military is doing as well. Are there specific initiatives or things that we can be looking forward to that the U.S. Pacific Command is uh, is looking at in terms of broadband and cybersecurity and everything in that space uh, in in a way that's uh, that would have impact here in Hawaii. Well, I think many of the things that we've been talking about today. I think uh, if I really had to try to uh, just bring it down to one point, it would be it's a different way of solving problems. So that's what really Paycom spends most of our time doing is trying to make sure that we. Uh, that we solve problems across the Asia Pacific to keep it safe and secure for and and let's allow it to continue to be prosperous. So when you start mm. taking these different areas, and just like Senator English and Dr. Bannister have alluded to, it, the different way of doing business is simple. We typically have always tried to silo the way we look at a problem, break it down to its smallest piece, come up with the you know come up with viable solutions, uh, weigh it, and then you go after it that way. Um, it's much more complex now. Um, and we have, we're finding out so many of these problems are interrelated. If you have problems with your water, you have problems with your food. Uh, if you have problems with water, most likely uh, it's some of the problems typically are coming anymore from the problems with your grid uh, because that's what you know, runs the pumps. So how, do you, how are all those things interrelated? Uh, and if you can solve those problems, these are places people want to raise their families, and these are places that are continue to be prosperous. So... Those are the types of the problems on, that are what we call non-traditional security-related issues. Mm-hmm. 
but these are also the same areas that um, they can start to cause unrest in communities as well in, in many of the countries across the Asia Pacific. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Kalani, I think, um, I, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but in terms of setting up this infrastructure being sort of at the leading edge, do you see, do you see that as uh, a way to position Hawaii for the expertise that might be needed in these areas? Because the one of the concerns is that there's sort of never the expertise that's needed for some of the state of the art. We always have to go elsewhere to bring that. Yes, in. but you know that's that's one of the thinking that we really should should discard because we're in a global market. So we are looking for the best thinking on the planet. I don't care where it comes mm-hmm. from, but I want that thinking employed here. That's the difference. We need to to find the best thinkers to help us find the solutions. And that's what AIRS is trying to do. That's what we're collectively trying to do. That's why such a unique partnership with HPU, with um, with AIRS, with uh, other agencies, and you know even uh, Swansea University and others, to try and find the best thinkers that we can find. We're even employing uh, Watson. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, just in the last couple of seconds, uh, where can we find out more information, kind of keep up on what's going on with uh, AIRS? We'll be putting something on the HPU website in a couple of days' time. Uh, we wanted to make sure that, that the bills were lined up, um, things were moving from that perspective, and we'll start um, laying out the, the plans as we work that on okay. at hpu.edu. Sounds good. And Kalani? Well, you know, you can find more information on this on the, the Senate uh, uh, the the Senate portal, hawaii.capital.gov. Have well, you got a top bill right now that we should be tracking? 892. 892 is the omnibus bill, and uh, I'll be posting that one. That that's, it has a lot of the information. Uh, yes, of and the topics that, that, that bill, now, this, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I don't know numbers. I, I no, know yeah. the content. Yeah, yeah, so right, right, right. Senate Bill 892 is omnibus bill mm-hmm. dealing with this particular issue. Uh, it, it just passed out of the uh, Ways and Means mm-hmm. Committee. Uh, and you have to understand that, you know, the a bill changes considerably as it goes through. So it, there'll be a, another draft of this. It'll come out of that, go to the floor, and then send to the House. Okay. And so it, it'll change as it goes along until we get it to conference. Sounds good. Well, so Senator Kalani English is the Senate Majority Leader, and Dr. Jeffrey Bannister is the president of HPU. And, of course, uh, Dr. Rich Berry, Director of Strategic Partnerships over at the U.S. Pacific Command. And we want to thank you all for joining us today. Well, welcome. This is the most fun we ever had. <laughs> thank you He told much. us to say that. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week when we'll learn about 20 years of TCC, an online conference for teachers. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovit. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called, or a guy called, Ben Gibbard, and a song called Bigger Than Love. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.